Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Loyalty. Now, too many leaders I say, see are a bit jaded about loyalty, and that's whether we're talking about customers or clients or, heaven forbid, employees, particularly those millennial-type employees where many people feel have no loyalty. We'll see about that. And these days, it seems that everyone is reevaluating life and shifting their focus. Loyal customers, I'm going to argue, generate greater returns, or so the research has said for quite a while, and they generate even more powerful word-of-mouth advertising. Loyal employees drive that customer loyalty. So the question is, how do you measure the loyalty? Why should you? And what do you do to foster it in both your customers and your employees and even those wonderful millennials? My guest today is Sandy Rogers, and he's the lead author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Leading Loyalty, Cracking the Code to Customer Devotion. Now, as a founder and leader of Franklin Covey's loyalty practice, he helps organizations accelerate growth through improving customer and employee loyalty. Now, what's fascinating to me about Sandy's background is he didn't just come to this from an academic point of view. He was previously a senior vice president at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, and during his 14 years there, he and his team figured out how to accurately measure and improve customer service at thousands of branching branches, helping them to triple the company's revenue over 10 years. That success is what inspired Fred Reicheld at Bain to create the Net Promoter Score, something most of us know now and has become the global standard for measuring loyalty. Um, And I should also add that Sandy's time at Enterprise helped them develop the ad campaign, Pick Enterprise, We'll Pick You Up. And he helped manage the turnaround in their London operation as well. Before Enterprise, Sandy worked at Apple in marketing and in brand management at P&G. And I'm also happy to say, more importantly than anything else, he has a bachelor's degree from Duke University an MBA, sadly, from Harvard, but we'll grant him that one on this particular occasion. Sandy, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Wanda. I'm thrilled to be here. It's a pleasure. It's really a pleasure. I have followed Fred Reichelt's work when I was an academic back in the way, way, way back days for a long time and used to teach some things around services marketing in particular. So I'm thrilled to talk to you to get back to the original source. But let me come back to you at the very beginning. Why does loyalty matter to you? How did you get focused on this idea of loyalty? Well, it's... Um, it's it's just basic. I mean, Peter Drucker taught us that the purpose of any business is to create and keep a customer, and that uh, the keeping the customer part requires their loyalty. You know, do they come back? Uh, do they buy more and spend more when they come back? Do they tell their friends and family? Um, so, loyalty is essential to any successful business enterprise. Okay. Um, And did you just happen on this one or was there something in particular in the enterprise journey that made it so powerful for you? My challenge uh, when I uh, left Apple and met Jack Taylor, the founder of Enterprise Rent-A-Car, and he invited me to 
to join the team in St. Louis and to help build this company that very few people actually knew about back then outside of St. Louis, we realized that um, we had to provide an experience that people would talk about. So they'd come back and bring their friends. Um, and our customer service anecdotally was sometimes terrific and sometimes not great. Um, and I suggested that, well, do we have any kind of measure of it across the thousands of branches we had? And the answer was, no, we don't. But, you know, Sandy, we grew up in the business. We, we have a very instinctual sense for which of these branches need to get better. And I was a little skeptical. And I remember a conversation with Don Ross, our chief operating officer at the time. And I said, well, Don, just for fun, let me pick 50 branches at random. Let me measure the service. And then you, you and the operators tell me which of the branches are above average, which are below average in terms of service. And they got half of them right, uh, which means they basically didn't know. And uh, the, the, the issue was it was going to cost $2 million a year to measure customer service in every one of these branches every month. And there was a lot of resistance to that kind of investment. Well, my feeling was, you know, if we're really serious about customer service, you, you can't manage it unless you measure it. And the, the first building block to increasing loyalty and in, in building a business is you have to understand whether transaction by transaction, you're making a deposit or a withdrawal in the relationship. Makes a lot of sense to me. Um, it reminds me of one of my favorite old stories back in the days when we were doing, um, it was before lean manufacturing, we're doing quality and quality controls in the old, the old days of that. And everybody was competing for our quality awards. FedEx at the time created a very simple metric, not the NPS score, but a very simple metric to capture things gone wrong in every distribution location around the country at the time, because it wasn't a global enterprise then, um, so that they could compare every single outlet with every single other outlet. And what I think that generated for them was a little bit of competition, a daily metric. Imagine this, we're back to 1980s, a daily metric on how did we do today? And it was just a single calculation on the five things that could go wrong and the severity rating for each one. We get a single number. Did we go up? Did we go down? Did we do better than those guys across town or not? And it just generated a complete turnaround in FedEx's service at the time. Now, we might argue they need to go back to it, but I always love that idea of a simple, single metric. And that's what you're talking about here as well. Yes. And and in that case, that was things gone wrong. Um, At Enterprise, we focused on things that went well. Mm -hmm. We were really looking at the percentage of customers at each branch that were completely satisfied. And then Fred Reichheld at Bain, I, I met him at a marketing conference in 1995, and I introduced myself, I was the head of marketing at Enterprise at the time. And I said, Fred, have you ever heard of Enterprise Rent-A-Car? He said, never heard of it. I said, well, let me tell you a little bit about our company. Uh, he, I invited him to St. Louis to meet our founders, and he just fell in love with the story of Enterprise. And as we grew, uh, he learned about how we were measuring and improving customer service and created uh, NPS. Right. But, but as you know, Fred looks at um, things gone well, the creation of promoters minus uh, the percentage that, that are detractors. Right. So he's kind of taken both sides. That's right. That's right. Um, for those who don't know the NPS score, can you just give us a quick recap? Or oh, we're trusting my memory. So in 1993, Fred wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review with you know, the one number you need to know, which was your, your net promoter score or NPS. And it was based on a question 
um, how likely would you be to recommend uh, Wanda to a, a friend or a colleague from zero, not at all likely, to 10, extremely likely? And it was basically a simple balance sheet measure. I mean, he took the percentage of people who gave a nine or a 10 and called those promoters and then subtracted the percentage of people who gave a zero to six score. Those are your detractors. And so that is the net promoter score. And Fred and Bain have done a ton of research that, that has proven that if you know the net promoter scores for various companies in an industry, um, the relative difference is extremely predictive of future growth. Great. So the bigger the gap between you and your nearest competitor, the more likely you're going to outgrow your nearest competitor. Right. Right. Okay. So, and I know several clients that use this, and I know several clients that use this on my services, which I always find fascinating to be subjected to it. But at the same time, it does really give you an interesting, you know, it's not the people who said this was okay. It's the people who said this was fabulous, nine or 10. That's a high bar. From the people who said, hey, it's average, maybe a tiny bit better than average. And that's a pretty powerful cohort there to know where you stand on all of those. All right. So let's go to the concept. I want to talk about loyalty in general. And I want to talk about your view of what creates loyalty. And let's take this first from a customer or client point of view. And then obviously, we're going to turn that to an employee point of view, because I think the employee piece is the really important piece. Agree. Start with the what creates loyalty in your view. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, as consumers, we hear about loyalty programs and frequent flyer miles and rewards points and um I think that the most important driver of our loyalty as consumers or as business people consuming things really comes down to the behavior of the organization and people serving us. Um, and yes, it's it, loyalty points and programs, you know, play a role. But ultimately, to create that fierce promoter, that raving fan, that that level of emotion that drives your future sales growth and the referrals and recommendations, it really comes from, you know, how do I feel about these people? And what we want are customers who say, I, I love them. I mean, they are fantastic. And I get a lot of pushback from our clients who say, well, why don't you count eights? You know, I mean, a lot, if you look at the people who, you know, take a survey and they give you a nine or a 10 versus an eight, and you look at the comments a lot of the comments associated with an eight will be, oh, it was good. Yeah, they did a great job. But if you look at a nine or a 10, it was, oh, yeah, they did a great job. But let me tell you about Wanda. She was just unbelievable. She went above and beyond. So the people really differentiate the difference between passive and promoter. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think um, when we stop to say what makes me as a client or as a consumer loyal to a brand or to a company. You know, granted they have to deliver kind of what they promised to deliver. That's a give that's table stakes. If you don't do that, we're in deep trouble. But there's a lot more that goes into it. And it's not just my frequent buyer program or my frequent flyer program that builds that sense of loyalty. It's like those frequent buyer programs, the good ones, tie me in. They make it harder for me to leave, but they don't generate loyalty for me. So am I weird that way? Is that what we're seeing across the board? No, I agree with you. I th I, it is the emotion that um, develops inside you as you work with people um, who are treating you with empathy. They're taking responsibility for the real things you're trying to get done. They're being generous with you. Those principles 
are what it takes to activate the loyalty that, that we want from our right. customers. Right. So they come back and recommend us to their friends. Yeah. So empathy, responsibility, and generosity. So explain those three to us. So those are what we call the loyalty principles. Um, they, they are the, the things that need to come alive in our interactions with other people. And, and yes, there's, there's customer loyalty, but a prerequisite for customer loyalty is employee loyalty. I mean, if the employees are essential to the customer experience, um, we need to first have them be excited about coming to work because that directly translates in how the customer experience is. But in any relationship, you know, with our spouse, our friends, our coworkers, they need to feel empathy from us. They, they need to feel like, you know, I, I am making a genuine connection with you. I'm, I'm, I've taken the time to really learn, you know, who you are and where you're coming from. Um, and then empathy then moves to, um, then they take responsibility for helping these people get to where they're trying to go. I mean, if you want my fierce loyalty, and I, I want you to understand, you know, kind of who I am, but then help me get to where I'm trying to go. And then generosity is the third principle. It's, it's the willingness to share insights, is to surprise people in little unexpected ways that, that are generous. They don't necessarily cost any money, but they just go such a long way to creating that, that fierce promoter we all want. So it reminds me of some, I think, now famous stories about brands like Ritz-Carlton and the extent to which employees are permitted, encouraged even to spend so much money on the spot, no questions asked, to satisfy a customer's needs, desires, interests. So that's that generosity. Whatever has gone wrong for you, we're going to fix it for you. And I personally will take responsibility, even if I'm the cleaner of your room, to go into it. Those are the kind of stories we think about with empathy, generosity, or responsibility and generosity. Yes. And it's about the leadership. And this is really important. The leadership, and in the case of Rich Carlton, I mean, Horst Schultz, you know, put that system into place. Um, but the important thing is, is putting our people into a position to enrich the lives of customers. Mm-hmm. And, and so, we, you know, he would stand up in front of the Ritz-Carlton employees and say, we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And no matter what your role is in the Ritz-Carlton organization, I mean, you could be a busboy refilling a water glass. But if in that time that you're there at the table, you overhear that the guest has a problem with their bathtub, you own that problem. I mean, you, you say, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry to hear you're having a problem. I'm, I'm going to contact engineering. We're going to take care of this. I will keep you informed. And you have up to $2,000 at your discretion, if needed, to make something right for the guest. Now, that's incredible. You know, a $15 an hour employee being given that kind of trust and empowerment, that not only earns customer loyalty, more importantly, that earns employee loyalty. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine being an employee in any organization with any kind of service, financial services, anything, where you have no power to solve a customer problem, particularly when you are interfacing with that customer in any particular way. And your job is to deliver bad news. I'm sorry, we can't help you. Cannot be generate any sort of sense of, I want to keep working here. I mean, you might do that one time, but if you do that multiple times, it's going to be awful. 
Well, that's the quickest way to um, destroy employee loyalty is to put them in a position to enforce bad policies yeah. or to um, put them in front of customers but tie their hands from doing things that you and I are – it's obvious. I mean, I have two quick examples. I was with uh, Dave Brandon years ago who was the former head of Babies R Us and Toys R Us, and we were talking about empathy. And he relayed a story that had gotten all over social media about this poor man who comes to return a, a load of unopened baby items to a Babies R Us store. And the people greet him. They follow the procedure. You know, welcome to the store. Well, how can I help you? I, I just want to return these items. They're all brand new. Well, do you have a receipt? No, I, I don't. Well, I'm sorry, sir. Without a receipt, you can't return them. The man's dejected. He goes home and posts his story. Well, the reason he's returning these items is his poor wife has experienced a miscarriage and he's distraught and you know david brandon just covers his face and says sandy how could i have put my people into position to not do the right thing in that situation and in so many organizations today we've got policies getting in the way of common sense yeah and a leader's first job you know i've got a, a strong sense for servant leadership is you've got to put your people into a position to enrich the lives of customers That'll earn the employee loyalty and the customer's loyalty. You feel good at the end of the day about the job you've done helping people. Um, I'm going to put this in an unusual context because we have been talking about this from a consumer brand retail framework. Across the board, different kinds. I want to put it in a services point of view. So even in a financial services or any other version of services, One of the complaints I hear from senior leaders in the services is you typically go to a client to make a pitch about something you believe this client now is going to need or could use or would be a benefit for them. Trust me, behind the scenes, there's thousands of hours spent around what might be a conceivable pitch and let's go through every record of this client and know them inside out. In fact, know them better than they know them. We come to the room and we say, here, dear client, this is what you need. And most of the time, sometimes that works. Most of the times it doesn't work very well. The senior leaders, the savvy senior leaders I see say, what a horrible place to start. Because it doesn't start with any empathy. Like what CEO or CFO wants to hear somebody else knows your business better than you do, number one, and doesn't want to hear what's on your mind. So it strikes me this notion of starting with the empathy. What are people trying to solve? What's the thing that's on their mind? What's their biggest concern? Or with a guy at Babies or Us, what has happened? Was there a problem? Have you got, you know, what is the problem we are solving here to steal from um, Clayton Christensen? Without that, the rest of it, I don't care how generous you are, it doesn't seem like it's going to work. Yes, I mean, Exactly. And so, and so why is that? Is it because those people in a service business don't, don't want to do the right thing and have empathy and, and discover the real job to be done? Or are they operating in a system of policies, procedures, sales goals, where it's all about the numbers and, and you know, make the pitch, make the sale, how you get there, it's up to you. Well, I think it's actually more effusive than that, at least in the clients that I look closely at. I think for them, it's this is the way we do it. 
You know, we've done death by PowerPoint for forever. That's what the people above me do. That's what I've watched people ahead of me do. That's what I have to do in order to be effective and successful. And so we just keep perpetuating the same behavior. That's one thing, because I can't tell you how many times I say, why would we need a PowerPoint? Can't we have a discussion? No, no, no. We have to have a PowerPoint. We have to. For example, just one of many. So I don't think there's a policy on it so much as there just is a shared history of what we do, and this is how we do it, and a belief that I can't break it as the junior person. I love TD Bank. They have a policy, uh, one to say yes, two to say no. Okay. No matter what a client asks you, say yes. If you're thinking about saying no, please check with your manager first. So, that, <laughs> so they've turned it upside down. <laughs> and he explains some of why they're doing so well at the moment, it, at least in some way. One to say yes and two to say no. I love that. I think there's a second problem, though, particularly when I'm dealing with a very sophisticated client on the other side in the service, that there's a fear that the client will ask me something I don't know how to answer. And then I'm going to look bad and I'm going to lose trust in that client. And the gut instinct of being able to say, I don't know, is just, oh, man, that is hard, hard, hard to come by, particularly if you're younger in your career. You know, that's interesting. You know, enterprise, we would teach our, our you know, men and women who join the organization right out of college. Um, it, it related to that point exactly. Never be afraid to say, that's a great question. You know, I, I don't know the answer, but I will, I will go get to the bottom of this right now and be back to you shortly. And, great. and you know, that just earns credibility because yeah. we don't all have the answers. And rather than the fake it till you make it sort of thing, be honest, be a genuine person. Right. Yeah, I, I, I personally believe that and I espouse that coming and going, but it's easier for us to say it and it's harder for people out there implementing it, particularly in the middle of their career, trying to get that edge to be certain that it is okay to say, I don't know. Um, I watched a very senior executive who was not particularly new in his job, but you know, let's say he'd been in the job for nine months. Audience member asked a question about strategy in a particular region. He said, you know, I don't know. I should know, but I don't know. I have to confess. I'll get back to you. And, you know, within the next four hours, sent me facilitating the whole session for the day an answer to the question on email and said, please tell the group X, Y, and Z. Here's the story. But I thought, geez, if he could, like you'd think somebody leading a division would know the strategy. And he just said, I'm sorry, I don't know. Rather than fake it, would a better right. answer. Well, that's interesting. And do you have any, how did they respond to that? Did they oh. appreciate that honesty? They were shocked that he would say that. Uh, shocked also that he didn't know, but impressed that he got back to, with an answer, that it wasn't just, oh, oh, I'll get back to you and never come back again. Interesting. Good. So, Good. All right. I'm going to ask a question that's maybe a little bit of the blinding obvious. In all of your experience, both at Enterprise and in all the work you've done since then, why do you think we should be measuring loyalty? It's one of the most important predictors of future growth. I mean, we put a tremendous amount of time and attention on our financial results, on our income statement and our balance sheet. But those tell us about what's happened in the past. 
the, our loyalty measures tell us about what's going to happen tomorrow and in the years ahead. You know, if we've got a whole bunch of promoters as customers, our business is going to grow. If they're all detractors, regardless of what our income statement says, we're probably not going to grow. Um, and the same with our employees. I mean, if we've got a whole bunch of detractor employees, we're going to see tremendous turnover, uh, which is going to severely impact the profitability of the business in the future. And the ability to deliver what you promised and a whole bunch of other things. We're going to come to that one in just a minute. Okay. Um, I think I've sort of covered. Uh, let's talk about this notion about the CEO, because one of the beliefs that I hear coming and going about every metric, whether it's customer loyalty or servant leadership you mend or diversity and inclusion or whatever, that it's the CEO that needs to drive it. And then unless the CEO comes out and hits this hard and puts on everybody's metric and you know bonus, all of that routine, then nothing ever happens. What's your view? Is that where this is going to really change, this notion of loyalty? I think the best CEOs um, define the boundaries, but then give their employees tremendous empowerment within the, the broad boundaries to, um, to, to, to do their jobs. Um, you know, you don't have to, you know, to, to really empower people. I mean, they want to believe that, you know, you trust me. Um, that, you know, you're not giving me a script. You're not <clears throat> confining me with some little policies. Um, and I can then go figure out how to solve customer challenges. Um, one of the processes that we recommend for organizations is to continuously ask employees, um, you know, these questions. Um, what's the most important thing you need from me? in order to help you better do your job. Mm-hmm. And I'd love for, you know, your frontline teams to, to brainstorm these things, uh, you know, and then vote on them and then have those trickle up from the bottom to the top. And then we as the senior leadership owe you an answer on the top 10 of the top 20, uh, where we'll, we might say, you know, um, thank you for that idea. We're not going to do that. Here's why. I mean, we're not allowed to do that. But that one, I mean, that's a really good point. I don't know why we don't do that. Um, And so people feel like, wow, I have this wonderful senior leadership team who's here to serve me so that I can be successful in the work that I do. Right. I, uh, one of my all-time favorite CEOs says, um, if you, you know, you're only going to get anything done by changing things, and the only way you change things is by uh, demonstration, followed by demonstration, followed by demonstration, meaning walk the talk, change yourself, that sort of thing. And he says, and if you don't know what to change, ask your employees. They have an uncanny sense of knowing what it is that needs to get fixed. And we have lost that discipline I think partly my philosophy about it is because we've gotten so focused on the CEO as the expert hero of the organization who sees the future better than anybody else in the organization at the top of the tree, looking out across the horizon and um, just should tell us where we're going and what we're going to do. But that puts completely loses the customer in that process because you can't see what it's like actually delivering to your customers or clients. Right. No, exactly. Yeah. But there's, you know, when you take that leadership title, whatever the CEO or other, and you have to define the strategy for your group, there's a tendency that as this leader, I should go off to the mountaintop, have an experience and come back with the tablets that give us the answer. 
And maybe there's another way, as you just rightly pointed out. Well, I think Jim Collins wrote about this, right? The difference between the level four and level five leaders. Yeah. You know, there's the, there's the genius with a thousand helpers and I'm, you know, Moses coming down from the mountain and here's my wisdom. And then there's the more humble, you know, level five leader who is, hey, you know, you, you all touch all the customers. Yeah. What do you think are the most important issues? One of my big frustrations is organizations today want to do millions of surveys. Then they want to spend tons of money on sophisticated data analytics to kind of tell them what the answer is. And they're bypassing one of the most obvious ways to understand what the issues are is, what do you all think? I mean, you're on the phone with our customers. You're facing them every day and the branches. How can I help you serve them? Right. Well, and as you said, roll all that up and look at the trends in that set of data. And you probably have some pretty good clues about what's the most important things to fix. Okay, Sandy, this is a perfect place to take a break. My guest today is Sandy Rogers. The book we're talking about is Leading Loyalty, Cracking the Code to Customer Devotion. It's a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And Sandy is also the founder and leader of Franklin Covey's Loyalty Practice. Uh, There are two things that strike me out of this conversation. One is I love your statement that given all the emphasis we put on finance, financial metrics, financial performance in every aspect, all we're doing is looking backwards at what we have done. Customer loyalty and employee loyalty are how we look forward at how we're going to be capable of doing more. And to me, that distinction is just really powerful. And I'm also now completely sold on your notion of start with empathy, followed by responsibility, followed by generosity, that that's the spirit of what generates loyalty for customers and I think also for employees. So we come back from the break. I want to talk about the employee side of this equation, why we should care and what we do about it. We'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. 
Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement, and we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Sandy Rogers. The book we've been talking about is Leading Loyalty. I said at the last break, I want to say it again because I think it's such a powerful insight. We spend all this time in our companies looking at the financial performance as well we should. Balance sheet, P&L, income statement, um, sales track record, you know, all of all of those, which are hugely important. But all of those are looking backwards at what we have done. None of us, none of that tells us how we're going to do in the future. And if you really stop to think about it, how we're going to do in the future is A, how likely are our customers to come back again, not just for the same volume, but for increased volume. How likely are those customers to really promote us to other places that increases volume? And furthermore, how likely are our employees to stick around and continue to provide the same level of engagement they have been providing? Because without that, your ability to deliver is shut. Now, the other thing I note um, that was Sandy didn't say, but I'm going to add to this from some prior podcast is when we start to talk about what makes for the best in class brands today. We know we're seeing that companies that have a sense of purpose or meaning that customers can identify with, that they relate to, and I don't mean your average purpose statement, I mean something that customers really can get behind, and employees can get behind for that matter, coupled with a belief that you treat your employees well. And you just have to look at some headline news about how employees have not been treated so well in the last few months and last years, and you start to see the knock-on consequences for your brand. So with all of that and with the research on loyalty and with Sandy's experience, we know that the employee's side of the equation is really important. Okay? So, Sandy, to you, I'm going to give you a quote you've given me, which is you say, customer loyalty rarely exceeds employee experience. So tell me about that. Well, so much of the difference between a good and a great experience comes down to how we feel about the people serving us. People serve us well when they're enthusiastic and happy and feel like they're in an environment where they have autonomy, purpose, they can really master the things that they're doing. Um, You know, I want to be a valued member of a winning team doing meaningful work. And it's the job of the organization, starting with the senior leadership, to make that happen. 
you know, th- there's a reason why, you know, when you're on a Southwest Airlines flight and they, 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 there are certain, you know, legal things they have to do. They've got to give you the safety announcement. You just have to. But, but Herb Kelleher said, it's okay if you want to sing it or do it as part of a comedy routine. I mean, that's incredibly generous for both the, the passengers and for the employees. And it's just a great example of putting people into a position to enrich the lives of customers. Right. Now, Southwest is noted for having a very unique hiring process, and they go out looking for people who are, in, for lack of a better word, entertainers in some ways and who are good with people and have that sort of comedy style. I think there's an old story about if you can't tell a joke, then you don't get hired. Um, so is this a matter of we recruited the right people in the first place, or is it something else about what we're doing inside the company? Well, I think it's both. I mean, you do want to screen for people who have empathy. Um, you know, JetBlue actually would screen for empathy and they would put a, their um, uh, potential new hires into a room and they'd say, I want each of you to, um, to tell, share your funniest story uh, with everybody else, something that happened to you at a prior job. And they weren't listening to the story. They were watching the faces of the other applicants in the room. You know, were they paying attention? Were they engaged? Because that's what they were looking for. People that have empathy that are engaging with other people. Right. That makes some sense. Okay. So we've got that one. All right. So um, is it the same when we're trying to create employee loyalty? So just to make the equation, how I see this employee loyalty, the longer I can keep my employees, even if I know that they're eventually going to leave me for something else. But if I keep them a year longer, I've got more productivity, less hiring costs, less turnover cost. I've got some value, I would argue, straight to the bottom line for just an extra year or two. And then in addition to that, they're going to go out and tell all of their friends, hey, this was a great place to work. You should go apply there. That helps with your hiring costs. And three, they have a tendency to come back after they've had a different experience, maybe a good one, maybe a bad one. They want to come back and work for you again, again, making your hiring and onboarding costs easier. Now, I need to ask if that's how you see it, Sandy. And go ahead. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, it's just as important as customers are to our future revenue growth. Employee loyalty is going to be one of the biggest drivers of our expenses going forward. Turnover is enormously expensive. Um, and so why not treat employees with empathy, you know, take responsibility for where each employee is trying to go in their career and be generous with them, you know, be flexible, you know, share insights, um, you know, surprise our employees in unexpected ways such that they walk out of work each day and say, I love my job. I mean, how lucky am I to get to work with these people? Right. That, and then that's when people are going to give that extra mile. And that deeper level engagement and that focus and surface those ideas and the innovation because there's the commitment to it. I have said, I'm going to say it again, just because I really do mean it. This employee turnover thing, we don't look at. We don't look at the cost of it, the cost of productivity, the cost of bringing somebody else in, the cost of getting somebody else up to speed. We don't put a number on that one. And if we did, I do a lot of talent defiance. I'll do a pay for performance scheme. If I keep some percentage of them for longer than a two-year period based on having gone through this process, then you get to pay me some of your savings. I never have a client who wants to take it up, but I'm pretty convinced if we got focused on it, we'd realize how much is at stake for that one. So, go ahead. And I I couldn't agree more with that. And I'm a big fan of uh, we should measure 
not only the, the customer service being provided by each manager, but we should also be measuring how effective they are at retaining the people that they say are the good people on their team. I was on the board of a public company a few years ago that had high turnover in some of their stores. And well, some of these were people we didn't want to keep. I said, well, fine. You know, we know what their ratings were on their most recent personnel review. Among the people that the manager said, yeah, these are good people. I want to keep these people. What percent did we retain over the next six to 12 months? And let's hold them responsible for that. But we could also do a better survey at the as people are leaving. If we did the same metrics that we know with customer service, it's not a whole new thing. We said, great, you're leaving. It's not an exit interview, but give us some ratings. And then well, we have, yeah. And no, I love a good exit interview. I mean, it's doing the deep dive, trying to really diagnose, you know, where was the breakdown? But I'm a big fan of a short, not one of these 60 question once a year surveys. I'm talking about more frequent, very short employee surveys. You know, how likely would you be to recommend this as a place to work, you know, from zero to 10? What's the most important reason for your score? How likely would you be to recommend our company as a place to buy the products and services that we sell? You know, I may love to work here, but I don't believe in our products. (laughs) So we want to understand that. How likely would you be to recommend your leader as someone to work for? And so we're really, and, and what is the most important thing that we could be doing to make this a better work environment for you? So very short survey, and the, 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 the power in this survey is the debrief meeting where the team comes together. It's an anonymous survey, and, you know, Wanda, you're our boss. You may say, well, look, this is what everybody said. I don't know who said what. Frankly, I don't care. What I want to talk about is what are some things that we as a team can do differently going forward based on everybody's feedback, which is right here. And then I also want to send our senior leaders feedback about what we need from them, things that are outside of our control to help us be more effective in the area that we're responsible for. And by doing this process and having the senior leaders respond to these things, it makes everybody feel like a valued member of a winning team pursuing important work. Because at the end of the day, that's what the most loyal employees tell us. They want to be part of a winning team doing important work. I'm a, right? valued, I'm a valued, I'm a valued member of a winning team doing work that I believe in. It goes back to Daniel Pink's, right. you know, drive, you know, do, do I have autonomy? Do you trust me? You know, yeah. do I feel like there's some purpose and am I, and can I get really, can I master this stuff? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I get really good at the area that I'm, that I'm involved in? And in a prior conversation, you mentioned, you know, a lot of times people are getting promoted and they're managing people who know a lot more about the subject than they do. And, and that's okay. We have to be comfortable with that, but we've got to understand what our role is. It's not to necessarily know as much as the people we're supervising. It's to put them in a position to be successful. That's right. That's right. I think, um, well, I write about this one, as you know, Sandy, um, but that, that distinction between whether my job is to do or my job is to enable is the fundamental distinction between whether I am the expert leader or the non-expert leader, what I call the spanning leader, where other people that. are going to be the experts. Am I doing or am I enabling? Yes. Okay. Let's talk about the millennial Gen Z challenge here. Um, I hear from lots of people 
a lot of complaints about millennials and Gen Z. And the number one thing that I hear is they're not going to be loyal. They're going to move careers. What are we saying? 10, 12 times now is I think what the statistics are showing of um, this younger generation. They seem to feel quote unquote entitled They want uh, pats on the back or a trophy, we often say, for absolutely everything. Now, mind you, when I talk to millennials and Gen Z, that's not how they feel about themselves, but that's what I'm hearing. So, what's your view about this younger generations and their employee loyalty? They need to be treated like everybody. I mean, they want to feel empathy. They want to feel like we're, you know, giving them responsibility and taking responsibility for helping them get to where they want to go, that we treat them with generosity and flexibility. Um, You know, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, when I was involved with them, hired more college grads than any other company in North America, and they probably still do today. Um, and, and, but, but it's, it is a meritocracy. Everybody at every level understands how they are doing in terms of customer service, employee development, growth, and profitability. And so everybody's ranked on these four things at all times. And so when a promotion comes up, it's, hey, you know, one day, here it is. I mean, here's where everybody stacks up. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to be good at one of the four things, but we're looking for people who are good at all four of the four things, right? They can walk and chew gum at the same time. And in that environment, you know, the, the right millennials are looking at that saying, I love this. You know, there's no politics here. This is a pure meritocracy. We keep score fairly. Uh, this is a great environment right. for me. I can see that um, because I do think one of the things that the younger generations are looking for is more transparency. So more insight into, and and that's where the feedback comes in. I think they desperately want feedback to know how they're stacking up, but they want it on a regular basis, not every six months. Or as one of my millennials says, Six months from now, if you've been holding on to that feedback, it's worthless to me. I've changed. The company's changed. And I'm angry with you for not having told me prior. I've been making a mistake for six months. How can that be? And so this regular evaluation and ranking that you're describing is transparent and immediate feedback and a case to go and say, well, so what do I do about it? And it doesn't feel like the manager sat there and thought of 300 things that you might have gotten wrong in order to do a performance ranking review. It's got a very different process to it. Everybody should know where they stand with their manager at all times. I mean, to, to be surprised at some bit of feedback three months from now is just so unfair. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just disloyal to me and our relationship. I mean, you should care enough about me to let me know today what the issue is so I can work on it over the next three months. Exactly. Exactly. Or what else might have changed or so on. I also think about the uh, millennials and the Gen Z as well, is that more than ever before, they're insisting on being treated as a whole person, meaning I have what I do for you as my manager. I have the output that I produce, and I, I get I'm accountable for that. That's not a big deal, but that's not all there is to me. And I want you, my manager, to understand me as that whole person, my aspirations, my interests, my hobbies my travel plans, whatever. Not, you know, not that you become my best friend, but I want you to know I'm more than your output engine. And I see people giving lip service to the empathy in your equation, but it isn't felt on the receiving end on the employee side. You know, we recommend that organizations run a weekly huddle. We call it a loyalty huddle. 
Uh, it's a 15-minute meeting where over 11 weeks, they cycle through the loyalty principles and practices. And while it's pointed at customers very quickly as they go through these huddles, um, it becomes about the employees. And when we talk about empathy and responsibility and generosity, it, it, it allows those conversations to happen so that employees feel like, you know, not only does my manager know me as a whole person, but so do my coworkers. Right. And, and it really creates space for those conversations that may not happen in the natural course of business. Right. All right. I loved in the book, your huddles. So um, just give me, you don't have to give all 12 of us, but give some of the principles and give me a couple of examples of the kind of huddles that you encourage people to do. So, um, you know, these huddles, there's 11, each of them are different um, and they cover empathy, responsibility, and generosity. Um, So in huddle seven, we teach one of the parts of responsibility which is following up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, employees will say, well, I'm not getting enough, of, you know, customer surveys to know why our service isn't perceived as good. And I ran the London, England operation for enterprise years ago. And I heard that and I said, well, what would get in the way of you asking customers as they walk out your branch door, what, what if anything could we've done to better serve you? I'm Sandy. I'm the manager here. I would just love any feedback that you have. You know, this following up with a customer, not asking, was everything okay? We hear that at the restaurant. I'm not looking for a yes, no. I'm looking for some learning and an opportunity to fix a problem if there really is one. And customers, and so we talk about this in one of the huddles, what does following up really mean? How do you do it in a way where the customers, following up also can happen with employees. You know, what if anything as your manager, could I be doing to better serve you, to put you in a position to delight our customers? Um, We ought to be having those conversations regularly. Right. Right. Um, and then when there are problems, because a lot of the reasons we don't ask those questions is because I don't want to know about problems. Because <laughs> what do I do if there's a problem? All right. I don't have so time we, already. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we teach him about the five A's. Okay. And so when somebody has a problem with you, the five A's, and we borrowed this from the Apple stores. They're very good mm-hmm. at this. The first A is assume the other person has good intent. Right. Don't assume they're trying to rip you off or they're a bad person or they're just, you know, critical. Just assume that they're coming from the right place and align with their emotions. You know, Wanda, you're right to be angry. I get it. I mean, I understand. Thank you for sharing that. The third A is apologize. We dropped the ball. You're right. I, I'm really sorry. I would be frustrated too. Ask, what can I do? So the fourth A, ask, what can I do to make this right? We dropped the ball. I am so sorry. And then assure the person, Wanda, I'm going to own this and I'm going to get this fixed and I'm going to circle back with you to be sure that you can take a detractor to a promoter so quickly, whether it's an employee or a customer, by following these five A's, not being defensive. And just just right. own it. Right. Make it right. We, you know, things happen. Stuff always goes wrong. Yes, it does. The, the difference between good and great is how you deal with the stuff that goes wrong. All right. That's right. That's right. We know that. We say that. But then we don't do very well with what do we do when stuff goes wrong. All right. I want to take your five A's. I like these. Um, and I'm playing back on some Apple experiences I've had going, oh, yeah, okay, I see that in action. Yep, they really did do that in that particular store on that particular occasion. But all right, I want to turn this back on a manager dealing with an employee. 
So an employee is frustrated, let's say working hours, lack of collaboration from another team, I don't know, lack of resources. So assume as a manager that your employee had good intent, align with the emotions, meaning acknowledge the emotions that that employee is feeling. I get the frustrations. Apologize. I'm sorry you don't have enough resources. Ask, what can I do to help you within the budget constraints, the constraints that I have? What do you need from me? And then assure, we're working on it. I think exactly. employees would be pretty happy with that. Absolutely. And so that's why we do the huddles, is to review these little things for 15 minutes every week. You know, the huddle begins with celebrating somebody on the team who was a great example of what we talked about in the huddle last week. Okay. So last week, we talked about the five A's. Remember, every 11 weeks, we circle back. And I just want to share with everybody, I saw, you know, Bill using the five A's, you know, it was incredible with a customer. And let's just celebrate that. Right. So that's what makes these huddles the most fun 15 minutes of the week, because it's a lot of celebrating and also creating space for people to say, yeah, I hear you about that empathy stuff. But how the heck am I supposed to have empathy for this customer who's shouting at me, you know, calling me names? What am I supposed to do in that situation? And the huddle leader says, you know what, that's a really good question. What do you guys think? How have you handled that? So rather than me be the genius with all the answers, hey, this in the huddle, I don't have the answers. How have you tackled that? And we learn together and come up with solutions. We say, well, let's try that. That's a good idea. And let's come back next week and see whether it worked for us. Yeah. I love the idea of the huddles. They're they're described in the book. So if you're interested, the book is called Leading Loyalty. They're nicely laid out on how to do them. But what I like is that 15-minute small bite of time. We were all together as a team, and we're just talking first about what's working and about what next we want to focus on and how we're going to be able to do it. And it just gets everybody all together feeling part of something and actually doing work that's important that makes a difference. And as you said, that's what builds employee loyalty at the end of the day, being valued along the way with it. So, Sandy, uh, we are out of time or almost out of time. I think we've got like 30 seconds left to finish this off. Um, I'm going to make a risk to ask you one question. What takes you out of your comfort zone? Oh, I don't know. Being asked a question, I don't know the answer to. (laughs) But I've learned to say, well, I don't know. Let me think about it and come back to you. Perfect answer for what we've been talking about. I love it. All right. My guest today, Sandy Rogers, the book we've been talking about, Leading Loyalty, Cracking the Code to Customer Devotion. Sandy is also um, at Franklin Covey, Leading the Loyalty Practice. I still love this thing I've said now three times about finances looking back back. Customer and employee loyalty is looking forward. Can we sustain it? I also love the framework. Empathy. I've got to show empathy. I have to take responsibility and I have to be generous with something. It's true whether I'm managing employees or it's true whether I'm interfacing with customers. Job as leadership is to ensure that people have what they need in order to show empathy, take responsibility, and give generosity. I just love that. And the five A's is about as good of an issue as a system I've seen in how to give, um, to tackle a problem that somebody's presented to you, particularly when there's a lot of emotion attached to it. Assume good intentions, align, meaning acknowledge the emotions, apologize for something, and ask what you can do or what they need from you, and then assure that you'll take action. 
get it fixed. Great formula for any manager anywhere at any level and keeps the defensiveness at bay. So, Sandy, thank you very much for being a guest today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Wanda. It was great to be with you. Fabulous. All right. Um, if you've enjoyed this, then please do check out our uh, subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. You'll find all sorts of other tools there as well. If you like the podcast, please like us on whatever your favorite podcast provider is. We appreciate those positive reviews. And join us next week for more wisdom in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.